Hello and uh, welcome to Family Office Connections. I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director here at Boston Private. Today we've gathered a group of life science CEOs who will give us their insights on the industry on the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic. This group represents innovative firms across the healthcare spectrum, including biotech, medtech, and healthcare services. Today we'll discuss the state of the life science industry, innovations coming around the corner, what the industry will look like in the post-pandemic world, and what opportunities could arise for family offices and other investors in the space. Well, let's get underway with some brief introductions. First, I'm joined by Jason Anderson, co-founder and CEO of Liberty Biosecurity, company specializing in the development of clinical stage pharmaceuticals. Jason, give us a quick snapshot of your background. Thank you, Ed, um, and uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to you and to Boston Private for kindly hosting this important conversation. It comes at a real critical time. Uh, my name is Jason Anderson. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Liberty Biosecurity. And just at the outset here, before we get started, I, I think it's important to recognize that this is a difficult time for many of the people that are listening in to our conversation. Um, the physicians and scientists and business leaders at Liberty Biosecurity um, join me in extending to you and, and your families um, our hopes uh, for uh, progress to be made against this global pandemic and that we can move the needle a bit uh, here and get back to uh, our collective fight uh, against both SARS-CoV-2 but also all the remaining health and biological challenges uh, that will remain after we, we clear this current pandemic. So uh, I'm looking forward to the conversation this morning. And again, thank Boston Private for bringing us together. Great. Thanks, Jason. Chris uh, Vallis, our, our second speaker, is founder and executive chairman of Meraki Innovation, the healthcare technology investment and development firm. Uh, Chris, give us a little thumbnail of your background. So uh, first of all, thank you for inviting me. Jason, thank you for uh, your, your words. Uh, I'm the founder of Meraki Innovation, which we founded 16 years ago. We focus on the development of and translation of advanced technologies, and all of them have to have an impact uh, on people's health and well-being. They either have to save lives, reduce suffering, or bring technology to people uh, around the world. I think never before has uh, our mission uh, been so clear and resonated so uh, well with people. We're proud to be uh, part of trying to bring uh, solutions to the uh, COVID-19 crisis. But more broadly, we've been at this for uh, 16 years, trying to bring and bringing advanced technologies to, uh, uh, to people. The last technology that we developed that was commercialized was the Oris Health Surgical Robot. Uh, which is now part of Johnson & Johnson's uh, arsenal in the fight against uh, lung cancer uh, and will be applied in many other places around the world. But we're very, very proud that it's making an impact on the life and health, health and well-being of people. Um, and we're trying to do the same with this COVID-19 pandemic. Great. Thank you, Chris. And our third guest is Russ Glass, the CEO of Ginger, a firm that provides on-demand on access of mental health care services. Russ, can you give us a little overview of your experience? Sure. First of all, thanks a ton for having me. I think critical critical topic right now and appreciate the opportunity to chat about it. Uh, Ginger, as you said, is an on-demand mental health system, and we're providing virtual care for a full range of mental health conditions. And, and we're really founded to solve for the supply demand imbalance that existed 
pre-COVID and uh, finding that the system is now very well suited, obviously, to this this uh, this period of time where mental health severity and issues are spiking. Uh, I'm a multiple-time entrepreneur. This is actually my first uh, stint in the healthcare space. I've been a CEO of Ginger now for about uh, 20 months or so. Uh, founded multiple companies. Last one I sold to LinkedIn and I ran the marketing solutions business at LinkedIn for three years prior to taking a little time off to be dad and uh, then jumping into mental health care. Great. Thanks, Russ. All right, let's spin. So we sit on the backdrop of the United States having breached the million mark of coronavirus cases. You know, Nassim Taleb, author of The Black Swan, has come out and said that COVID-19 is not a black swan. Jason, where do you think? I thought this is a this is a good question. Um, I, I I agree with him. I you know I, I I know publicly he came out last month and said that he does not um, see it as a black swan event. And and I saw him be interviewed the other day um, where he was saying what we're currently kind of navigating is this domain of high uncertainty. And and I think that's right. Um, it's a better description than saying black or white swans that that I know uh, is being kicked around in the media quite a bit. Um, all of the things that we're, you know, experiencing are a direct result of, you know, well-known and well-documented frailties, global health governance and kind of risk mitigation strategies and systems. Um, we've known that this problem was coming for a long time. You know, everyone from a Bill Gates to the former CIA director, uh, John Brennan, had been beating the, the public drums for some time saying, that the real threats that we were going to face were going to come from uh, both naturally occurring and man-made modified biology and that those were going to be the the real significant challenges that we would face in the coming decades uh, for myself my family and i had lived in beijing uh, we were residents there during the sars crisis of 2002 2003 and you know if you ask my wife and i you know if if we thought we would see it come back within the next two decades we might have shrugged our shoulders and said, uh, why was it going to take so long, um, just given the, the profile of this disease and just the, the you know, exponential increases in the interconnectivity across the planet. So I don't think um, this at all comes close to a, a black swan event. Um, the, the real kind of severe unknowns you know, highlighted by Taleb are, are really compounded and, and frankly a bit frightening, I think, for most people today, just because we don't have our toolbox uh, yet mapped out as to how we're going to tackle uh, this challenge from a therapeutic standpoint, or certainly from a vaccine standpoint, um, you know, in the here and now. And we're going to have to ride out the next coming waves of COVID-19 uh, uh, without the arsenal that, that I think we would want to have. Um, our friends in the Southern Hemisphere are certainly, in terms of the timeline, going to uh, go through this uh, here in the next, uh, say, two to three months uh, as they begin their influenza seasons. I think it'll be a precursor of what sort of challenges we'll have here in the United States and in the Northern Hemisphere come the fall and winter. Uh, my hope is as we get one or two uh, good therapies uh, online, um, you know, certainly by that period. But the idea that we're going to have this problem in the rearview mirror, you know, with a vaccine is, is certainly not going to be uh, available to us, I think, until the, the first part of 2021 uh, at best. So um, I think Talib was was exactly right in saying not a black swan, should have seen it coming, um, and we can do something about it with preparation, for sure.
So, Chris, let's talk about the, the toolbox that Jason mentioned. In, in what ways do you see that healthcare needs to change in order to be ready for the next pandemic? Well, um, Edward, if you don't if you don't mind, I just want to comment on something Jason said because I am having um, a bit of a moment of uh, shock. I did not realize that uh, Talib had made that uh, comment recently and publicly um, because if you go back several months, a major Silicon Valley uh, venture fund had labeled this as a as a black swan, and in fact, we responded to investors in industry. Uh, with a white paper on March 16th. Uh, it was an eight-page white paper clearly stating why this was not a black swan, uh, that in fact it was predictable, that the warnings were out there, uh, and that uh, governments uh, around the world should have heard the warnings of their agencies, organizations, scientists, and healthcare workers. Um, the only respect in which it's a black swan is uh, in the predictability of its timing but right down to where it came from, uh, how it emerged and how it went around the world were all sort of predictable, knowable events in advance. And in that sense, it truly isn't a black swan. And I'm happy to share uh, the white paper with you and any of the listeners. Chris, you mentioned the, the white paper. Are, are there some things that you could maybe share with us about uh, what healthcare needs to do in order to be prepared for the next pandemic? Sure, ab absolutely. Uh, the first is r really governments and leaders, uh, and especially our elected officials in the United States, are going to start to need to pay very, very careful attention to scientists, healthcare workers, and the agencies that have uh, warned them for uh, decades about this. You know, the warnings go all the way back to the um, uh, Nobel case. Uh, Nobel uh, Prize winning Alexander Fleming's speech, you know, he was the discoverer and inventor of, of penicillin, and he essentially warned uh, that there will be a time in our existence when antibiotic and antimicrobial resistance uh, will be a, a really huge concern, despite inoculations and, and despite uh, uh, antibiotics. Um, so this is no new message, um, and it's time that we pay careful, careful attention to it. So, you know, what do we have to do uh, in order to do that? Um, the first is we need to begin to develop the tools uh, to do it. And, you know, there's a saying in warfare that you sort of don't go to war with what you want, you go with what you have. And the problem is we don't have the right tools right now. So development of uh, tracking tools in order to identify where these viruses are coming from, how they're spread, development of tools in order to rapidly contain them. So that means uh, not only identification, but immediate inoculation of the healthcare workers and the people at the uh, core point from which the virus uh, or bacterial fungal infection is uh, spreading. Uh, and then finally, therapeutic interventions that are not just specific to the, uh, to the pathogen. They need to be broadly effective across any emergent pathogen. Um, so an example of that would be, we need to be able to uh, create inoculations almost immediately. The idea of taking a year uh, and then taking another year in order to convert factories and build factories and in order to get those into distribution channels is unacceptable. It always has been, and this has been a known problem. So these are the types of things that we're gonna have to address uh, in the coming months and years, 
in order to contain a pandemic uh, like this. And, you know, I think the bottom line here about the comments with respect to Black Swan and the way you phrased the question is that uh, this is not the first time this has happened and it's not the last time it has happened. Um, and so we're going to need to be prepared uh, for the repercussions of it and aware that uh, it will happen again. Thanks, Chris. And Russ, a related question in terms of innovation. I mean, you've, you've certainly uh, been at uh, the tip of the spear on some of the uh, recent work you've done in telemedicine. What do you think are, are, are what kind of innovations are needed and, and how uh, should healthcare look at those types of innovations in a post COVID-19 world? Yeah, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question. I, in a lot of ways, I think those innovations are already happening. Um, you know, it's, it's that, uh, it's that old adage, necessity is the mother in, of invention. You know, I, I, I look at um, the incredible adoption rate of telehealth. You know, if you, if you, I mean, all of these technologies had been available before, but, but people were adopting them at pretty low rates. Um, all things considered, part of it was a was a reimbursement issue where you know there there were there were fights for uh, telehealth being reimbursed at as high a rate as in person. Uh, part of it was just that people uh, never tried telehealth kind of solutions, and now you know if you talk to Kaiser, they've gone from about fifteen percent you know telehealth visits to. 85% telehealth visits in the last four weeks. And people are recognizing how valuable these services are. And so, you know, I think a lot of it is you've got, you've got adoption in telehealth. Uh, we're never going back, sort of the, the genie's out of that bottle. Uh, it's it's uh, adoption of technologies like we're using right now. Uh, you know, Zoom technologies, WebEx technologies, that again were available before, but people didn't realize how convenient and effective they could be. Um, you know, and so I, I'm optimistic that what we're seeing right now is a world that in a lot of ways is far more ready for this kind of disruptive event than we've ever been before. And because of that, we'll have a faster and I think the way we work and, and um, are able to continue to add add value to the economy post this period uh, will be quite high. Well, I certainly appreciate your optimism there. Um, switching gears a little bit towards the, the geopolitical angles of this, you know, the reactions to, uh, you know, announcements of the U.S. potentially or, or is halting funds for the World Health Organization have ranged widely. I mean, we've had reports that China is going to pledge funds to the group. Some have applauded the administration's move while asking for exceptions uh, for certain countries, while others have raised some concerns about this effect, especially in developing economies. Chris, I mean, your work takes you into so many different parts of the world. What do you think about it? Well, sure. You're right. I've been to China five times in the last uh, couple of years. I've spent considerable time in the MENA region, uh, Europe, U.S., and some bit in Latin America. And so I've had a, a broad exposure to governments and healthcare systems. Um, and, and my reaction is not so much political uh, as it is with respect to a mission of taking care of people around the world. In that respect, who blew it, period. I have watched the, uh, the tapes over and over again 
of the public statements made by Google officials. And the bottom line is they got it wrong. Um, and the fact is that China shut down regional flights and yet allowed uh, international flights to continue. And that is central to the fact that this virus spread around the world and for some reason appears to be relatively uh, contained in China. Um, and while this was happening, who was showering China with accolades? Now, how or why that happened is really not my purview. To me, the bottom line is if an organization can't be trusted to fill its primary mission after it had really clearly and explicitly stated over a decade that epidemic and pandemic control was part of what it was uh, supposed to be providing to the world, and in particular to underdeveloped economies, then we absolutely have to question what's wrong with the organization and whether it can be trusted to fulfill the rest of its uh, economic, uh, healthcare, um, and uh, impact mission. Um, and I do think it's worthwhile to, to pause and to think about whether the organization uh, achieved its goal um, and, and its mission in this case, and there are questions to be answered. Thank you, Chris. Let's jump into the state of the life science industry today. Russ, your, fir your firm addresses a very important issue, access to mental health care. How has this pandemic changed the dynamic of this on-demand mental health care and, and medical care in general? Well, Ginger was designed to solve a supply-demand imbalance that existed in mental health, you know, long before the pandemic. You know, we're, we're in a situation globally where you know, 20% of the population has a mental health disorder and only 30% of them are getting any kind of care today. And, and so it's interesting in, in, in this space that the, there was already a significant shortage of providers available to uh, solve this problem. And, and, and Ginger looked at that and said, okay, you have to rethink how mental health care is delivered. You have to think about how you're going to scale delivery, you're going to how you're going to pull cost out of providing quality care. And a lot of that gets down to, you know, virtual delivery of care, collaborative care models, uh, using technology to personalize and measure interventions and make sure they're working. But now uh, in this period, we're seeing a whole new crisis uh, in terms of the scale and severity and you know, just some just some examples. We're we're seeing daily active users uh, on the Ginger platform up about ninety percent over the last six weeks. We're seeing clinical services, so those who are more severe, more acute, up about one hundred and thirty percent. And we're seeing the severity of these conversations, which which we measure. We have our providers measure on a one to five scale to help us load balance. Uh, the, the severity of those issues is up about thirty percent. You have more people needing care. It's more acute and it's more intense in terms of conversations. And you know the the prediction we have is that we're in the first inning of this. Uh, that that the the transition period of going back into a world where you still have the virus around, but now you, you have uncertainty about being out in public will actually be a tougher mental health period than this period of somewhat more certainty, uh, but still obviously a ton of uncertainty is uh, compared to that. Thanks, Russ. And how does Ginger work? Uh, I think it's an, it would be an interesting one because it's a different uh, delivery mechanism for that supply demand balance that you talked about. 
Yeah, so we're an on-demand mental health system. And, and, and basically, you can think of us as an entire end-to-end system for uh, the delivery of mental health, but, but virtual. And we start with uh, preventative care. So we have behavioral health coaches that are providing chat-based care 24-7. Within 60 seconds, you're connected to one of our live behavioral health coaches. Uh, those coaches provide... Uh, things like mindfulness and meditation um, exercises. They provide uh, motivational interviewing and smart goal setting. They help you be accountable, almost like a gym coach might, but help, help you be accountable to, to um, making sure you're taking the next steps in your mental health journey. So 85% of the care we provide is actually at this preventative subacute level. Then 15% of the time, we have people that need more care whether that be from therapy or, or, or psychiatry. But instead of referring people out, Ginger actually brings those providers now into the care team. So the coach now starts collaborating with the therapist who's providing video-based sessions. They make sure that our members are working on what the therapist uh, or psychiatrist wants them to work on between those sessions. And then the coach acts as step-down care once those people graduate from that higher level of care. And all of this is surrounded by technology that monitors conversations and makes sure that um, we have both consistency and quality, but personalization of interventions so that we're using all we've seen in the past to apply to the new conversations. And, and in the end of the, at the end of the day, what happens is you end up with better care. We get people healthy at three to four times the rate of the standard of care and less expensive care. So we're bending the cost curve because we can do it far more efficiently. So Russ, we've talked about your model in terms of B2B to C. Are, are you seeing employers increasingly looking at this as a potential employment benefit? Yeah. In fact, it, Ginger's model is actually, you know, 95% of what we do is provide uh, this as a benefit to employees of employers. And so, you know, a lot of our, our largest employers are those like um, CBS and Sephora and Delta Airlines and PwC and others that are that are providing this access to their tens of thousands of employees. Um, we're also actually interestingly working increasingly with investors um, and uh, who, who are trying to provide both support to their employees uh, uh, that work at the investment firms, but also to uh, the companies that they invest in because they want those companies to make you know, have uh, continuity plans in place and make sure that the mental health of their most valuable assets are taken care of. Thanks, Russ. Chris, uh, let's switch to the medtech industry. Can you give us uh, your insights on the state of that industry, uh, specifically as, as COVID-19 uh, has impacted that? And how has it impacted your work at uh, Meraki? Sure. Um, well, first, in terms of how it's impacted the industry, uh, and MedTech, the answer to that is in every way, top to bottom, and it's worthy of a, of a book. So I'll, uh, I'll focus um, what I address in the answer to what I believe the audience will be interested in, which was how does it sort of infect uh, investor, affect investor perception. Um, I would say, though, that broadly, uh, you know, it is going to accelerate all the technological advancements that we have imagined that uh, it is going to become clear to the world, whether it's 
individual citizens, governments, healthcare providers, that the technologies we've been imagining developing and it may have been on sort of a slow development schedule are going to be on an absolutely uh, accelerated schedule. And that does go from telehealth uh, to changes in the point at which healthcare uh, is delivered. I don't think it, the front door to the healthcare system will be the emergency room any longer. It'll migrate out and we'll see it just like we are uh, at CVS and Walmart and even in, in your home. Those things uh, are going to happen at a faster clip than ever. And the second big trend is that uh, the world has now realized that we are probably in a post-antibiotic, post-antiviral um, kind of environment. And that along with the big three, uh, cancer, uh, diabetes, um, heart disease. So, you know, in addition to the big three, cancer, diabetes, and heart disease, um, you know, infectious disease is going to rise to the top of, uh, of concern in the healthcare system. In terms of what it means uh, to investors, I think that the pandemic has really brought an industry understanding from the laboratory to Main Street. Um, over the years, I've heard investors say to me that MedTech is a zero-one game, you know, either the technologies win or lose. I've heard that it takes decades to develop medical technologies. Um, and I've also been asked at times to defend whether MedTech was an impact investment. And I think today it's now clear that the industry really can turn on a dime. Uh, MedTech's development can be extremely rapid. Um, and uh, advancements can be made sometimes if in months, if not years, uh, certainly not always decades. Um, and I really think it's probably, uh, we'll never hear again whether or not MedTech is actually an impact investment. Um, I think the perception is probably shift to, it is the original impact investment. Uh, it has been and it always uh, will be. Uh, not so much a question of, uh, whether or not saving the environment, for example, uh, is important. I think the reason, uh, you know, the earth has survived a long time. Uh, it will survive beyond our existence and it will heal as we're seeing during this pandemic. Uh, I think when we talk about all these other areas of impact investing, it really comes down to not whether we're saving the earth and environment, for example, it comes down to whether by doing that, we're saving ourselves. Um, and that really is the issue. Um, impact investing is about saving humanity, and it's very clear at the end of the day, if we can't take care of our own health and well-being, um, that the that the rest is is fundamentally irrelevant. So, Chris, uh, Meraki itself has a, a unique setup uh, and approach uh, to med tech. Can you talk about that and any of the projects that you have related to COVID? Sure. Um, Yes, I mean, we are a venture fund, but uh, I think about everything we do belies typical venture. Um, our investments are not only hands-on, but our companies largely developed in our, our 15,000 square foot venture development center, which is uh, right in the center of Harvard Square. I'm actually looking out our windows at the campus uh, right now. We're, we're very close, not just to Harvard, but Boston University, MIT, and the academic research centers uh, in Boston. Um, and all we do is geared on making uh, translational medicine fast, um, getting things and big solutions out of the laboratory and to patients in need 
uh, as rapidly, efficiently, and cost-effectively as it can happen. Um, and I think the two years has been a very good example for us. Uh, we decided to dedicate a portion of our efforts and our investments towards infectious disease, um, knowing that sepsis, for example, a broad infection, uh, is one of the number one killers in the world, uh, and people don't often realize that. But also being aware that this type of pandemic and epidemic event is uh, probable, the unlikely. Um, so we've been working with uh, groups like DARPA at the United States Department of Defense, that's an elite research group, um, as well as uh, the Lee Center at Harvard University, looking at technologies that are broadly applicable to infectious disease. And we have a team uh, and investment that just does that. Uh, BOA Biotech is one of our portfolio companies, um, and it's based off of technology that was developed uh, in the organizations I just mentioned. It does two things. One is has a very broad-based diagnostic set of tools so that we are able to identify over 100 different pathogenic diseases uh, in, a, in a blood sample within an hour in one shot. Um, and it's not uh, sort of the type of blood diagnostic hocus pocus you've heard in the lab uh, in the past. It is based off of years and hundreds of millions of dollars of research done at top academic and government institutions. Um, and in the last months, we have shown that it captures uh, COVID-19 and that we can fingerprint the uh, pathogen along with a uh, hundred other uh, pathogens. And so we're working very quickly to bring that uh, to market and to patients. The other unique thing that it can do is that we can take uh, pathogens and their byproducts. When pathogens are killed by the body, they're broken down into these little things called PAMPs. And those PAMPs trigger the cytokine storms that some people might be hearing about on the news. Uh, with our technology, we believe we're going to be able to take those pathogens and PAMPs directly out of patients' blood with a dialysis-like filter and downregulate the immune response. And, and what that means to patients that are very, very sick uh, is that that inflammatory response that's causing their organs to shut down, we hopefully will be able to intervene with. And, and to the point of being quick. We've gone uh, from identifying our ability to capture uh, the pathogens and its byproducts with this technology to uh, uh, receiving $40 million in collaborative agreements with Walter Reed uh, and Uniform Services University of the Department of Defense um, in order to go into clinical studies uh, with both of these technologies as quickly as possible and most likely in the, in the course of this this year. Um, earlier, I said MedTech can turn on a dime, and here you've got an example of our Department of Defense, our academic institutions, and your translational venture capital firms like us uh, taking technologies and bringing them from laboratory concepts to patient uh, within the window of, of a year. Um, we're very, very hopeful that we'll be able to help people with this, and the progress we're making uh, is, is very, very quick. Um, and so we'll keep our fingers crossed that we have the uh, clinical success that we were anticipating. Fantastic. Thanks, Chris. Jason, uh, talk to us about the state of the, the biotech industry uh, before uh, the pandemic and now that we're in the middle of it. 
And we've heard a lot of discussions of teams banding together like a Manhattan uh, project style fashion. Is this true? And, and do you think it's going to last? Um, let, let me just say, I, I've enjoyed uh, the comments here from, from Chris and from Russ, and I, and I echo them uh, in their entirety. I, I, I think the major muscle movements, and, and Chris spoke to this a couple of times with regard to um, you know, the, the perennial issues that, that we need to come to, uh, to terms with and find solutions for. Um, and I was mentioned several times, uh, the uh, loss of antibiotic uh, effectiveness and the rise of um, resistance features in uh, bacterium across the, the globe um, and uh, diabetes. And I think Chris also mentioned, you know, cardiovascular disease um, as, a, as a third uh, sort of major issue there. Um, those are pandemics, uh, to be frank. Uh, those are our global health issues, which in their totality, as terrible as COVID-19 is in terms of its loss of life and how severely it's impacted us, um, they will, COVID-19 will pale in comparison to what we will face with regard to a loss in antibiotic effectiveness and um, the, the threats uh, faced from things like diabetes, these sort of chronic diseases. Um, at, at Liberty, um, you know, we are a, a pharmaceutical development and discovery company. Um, we do, you know, have scientists and physicians in wet labs in Massachusetts work today, you know, optimizing therapies and therapeutics and, and drugs, um, you know, for some of the issues that, that Chris uh, mentioned, um, our first uh, drug that goes into human trial this, this summer. Um, is designed to destroy uh, the biofilm matrices and chronic wounds. Um, if you look at, uh, say, something like a diabetic foot ulcer, whom I'm sure many people on this podcast have family members who struggle with diabetes and lower limb uh, implications, um, you know, that disease is, uh, costs more in terms of direct costs to the U.S. healthcare system than the top five cancers. So you're looking at, you know, over $13 billion a year we're spending on diabetic foot ulcers and those diabetic foot ulcers are being driven by uh, biofilm formation in these wounds uh, that are chronic that lead to systemic infection and eventually leads to surgeons having to cut people's you know, feet off. And this is a, it's a global pandemic. Uh, almost half a billion people across the planet are at threat for this and in some countries say a country like india some of the modeling you know points to that there could be a complete you know percentage point loss in gdp just from the threat of uh, lower limb diabetic uh, implications so um, these big muscle movements that we in medicine and in the development and in the biotech field um, were focused on before COVID are going to remain and i echo chris's uh, categorization of those um, what happens after this? I, I think I think what you know Russ pointed to and and, and what Chris spoke to uh, very much takes place. I think there's a, a greater degree of agility. I think we ask more of our regulatory uh, agencies with regard to um, expediting, uh, especially on the diagnostic and on the the digital side, a lot of these capabilities. I think therapeutics and drugs, um, and and we live this every day at Liberty are going to remain a long-term strategic sort of uh, initiative, multi-year 
you know, heavily uh, supervised um, sort of processes where you're not going to see really too much uh, change in terms of either timeline or requirement just because with drugs, you know, you have zero, you know, room for, uh, for error here. And the bar is very high and it should be high. And it's still going to make, you know, the, the majority of these initiatives and efforts, especially on, on the drug side, um, will we'll still be several years and, and will be very capitally intensive um, uh, activities. Um, to your point about whether or not um, a Manhattan project is going to, you know, come together, I, I really don't see a Manhattan-like program taking root here in the United States. I, I think NIH and the other important federal nodes that, um, that Chris you know, spoke to earlier um, are going to remain principal drivers and, and, and largely facilitators and regulatory gatekeepers, but not really the, the policy drivers behind a Manhattan-like project. I think the smaller biopharma companies and, and the tech transfer groups in our academic centers are really gonna be driving the majority of the impactful discovery and in intellectual property generation uh, in, our, in our field. Um, this is gonna really accelerate, I think in the age of precision medicine where drugs and therapies become hyper-tailored to an individual's uh, genomic composition as opposed to an at-scale, one-size-fits-all kind of drug program. I also think that in the United States and in Europe, um, we'll likely continue to benefit from um, patient strategic investors and, frankly, uh, entities like you work with, Ed, uh, like family offices, given the timelines and discipline culture that it really is required to get therapeutics and biological engineering capabilities into the marketplace. Um, this kind of stands in contrast. We were talking about China earlier. Um, you know, the Chinese are skating in the other direction uh, with regard to placing their life science capabilities directly underneath the supervision of the state council and plowing tens of billions of dollars into what is essentially kind of a brute force initiative. Um, a lot's been made, um, you know, when we sit around the table to discuss this uh, in our field, uh, a lot's been made about these two competing strategies. Um, and we ask ourselves, you know, who's likely to win out? Uh, personally, uh, I'm betting on our model of innovation uh, led by entrepreneurial physician scientists um, joined by our long history of disciplined, you know, peer stress review of their breakthroughs as opposed to a top-down secretive or straight or state-directed system. So in short, Ed, you know, I, I just don't see that Manhattan-type program of yesteryear taking place today. So uh, thank you, Jason. And Russ, perhaps some of your thoughts on that in, in terms of the uh, investment in uh, the life science space post-COVID-19. Do you think that it potentially could be a golden age for you know, the entire industry, or is it going to be something that we forget about next year? Yeah, it's a good question. I, you know, I mean, I think historically events like this lead to lots of activity and investment for a period of time. And then, you know, we, we tend to forget and move on to the next crisis of investment. Um, but I certainly think for a period of time, we're going to see increased interest in, in investment in, um, you know, general uh, therapeutic interventions, uh, vaccines. All of a sudden, we all, we all understand uh, the, the path for vaccine creation like we never have before. 
Uh, we all understand the importance of of medications and, and how they might be able to be used um, both on and off label to solve for things like this. So I, I think you'll see, uh, you'll certainly see short-term changes and, you know, the long-term history would tell us that uh, we'll probably forget about this in 10 years. Chris, uh, Jason mentioned some of the, the sort of public-private partnerships in, in, in life science. Do you see uh, those changing post COVID-19? I know your firm has done some uh, uh, work in that space. Do you think we'll see additional government partnerships? Uh, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the first thing I note here is uh, I cannot remember a time in history when an elected official uh, like the president of the United States has brought uh, public corporations to the podium alongside him and talked about collaboratively uh, putting into place a healthcare system that relies on our corporate infrastructure, and and the president did just that. He brought, uh, you know, Walgreens, LabCorp, I believe it was Roche, uh, and several other companies to the podium with him. And and you know we're we're now thinking about getting uh, our diagnostic tests at a tent uh, in the in the uh, parking lot of of Walmart. So the answer is yes, those are example of public-private uh, partnerships. I think they're gonna go much deeper than that though. And I think the point at which they're gonna become really impactful is the relationship between research um, and entrepreneurship. And the path for that is gonna look something like this. I believe that the grants that go to uh, uh, the, the Department of Defense, uh, Center for Disease Control, uh, uh, hospital and human services, the NIH, uh, are going to uh, increase. Those will go to academic uh, institutions and research laboratories. But there's going to be an increased focus on taking that research uh, and actually turning it into innovation that, that reaches patients. And that's where the collaboration between government organizations, academic institutions, and the venture community uh, is really going to uh, come to light. And I think this is an area that is not going to be forgotten. I think within government organizations and agencies, this pandemic is going to resonate for a very, very long time. Uh, and it's going to be uh, an undercurrent that people are no longer afraid to address and address publicly. In terms of our, our investment memory, I'm, I'm equivocal, or I should say, uh, I feel strongly in, in two directions. On one hand, I think investors have a very, very short-term perspective uh, often, and it is quite possible that they'll jump to the next uh, exciting or, or distracting uh, thing that happens in the public markets. With that said, there are long-term undertones when events like this happen that change investment behavior uh, and societal behavior for decades. Uh, post the uh, Great Depression, behavior around savings, uh, fear of uh, market crashes changed and was passed on for, uh, for decades. Uh, I think there are gonna be some uh, reflexive uh, and short-term memory here. I think there's going to be a whole bunch of long-term memory uh, that doesn't 
elude people. Think about all those kids who are not going to school right now, who are not finishing their senior year, who are deferring going to college next year because they're not sure if the colleges are going to open. And, and they had plans from the time they were born and their parents had plans for them from the time that they were born um, that are being disrupted now. I don't think the psychological impact of those events uh, is going to go away quickly. I think those are going to be embedded in our uh, societal DNA permanently. And I think they're going to create a, a, a unique way in which we're going to react to med tech, healthcare, and, and, and public markets in the long term. So, uh, Jason, a follow up on, on that thought. I mean, what are your, what are your, Thoughts there in terms of a, a government involvement and, and, and new partnerships there. I mean, 9-11 brought certainly a, a tremendous amount of change to the national security community. Do you think uh, there's a potential for that kind of a change and a revolution in, in the life sciences space? Yeah, yeah. look, I, I, you know, I, I think it's important to kind of think about what the long-term um, changes that are going to be brought about by, by this experience. Or, and and I, I'd like to encourage everybody on the um, on the podcast when they have an opportunity to go and, and take a look at Walter Isaacson's um, excellent essay that he wrote in the Wall Street Journal, I think back in March. Um, and, and he makes a very passionate case about how the current crisis that we're going through is really spurring the, the dawn of the, the biomedical biotech century. Um, and he, he calls out and kind of says, Look, this is the third great innovation revolution that in in our time. Um, you know, we had the age of the atom, the, the age, the digital age, and now we're transitioning to the age of biology. And and he's totally right. Um, the the you know materials revolution. Um, you know, we haven't had real breakthroughs in the last fifty years um, on the materials revolutions uh, material side. And it's really going to be biology where we're going to see the majority of, of these new uh, improvements come out of. And, and these things are going to be required not just to make the next you know, big leap in engineering, uh, but also to extricate ourselves from the challenges we face as a species, from, from everything from climate change um, to maybe even you know, achieve our goal one day of being an interplanetary species. Um, and you know, here at Liberty, we're, we're privileged to have um, working relationships, uh, very deep uh, privileged ones with the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and our, and our national space agencies to look at uh, biological capabilities and transition them from, um, from the, 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 the space environment to, to here on Earth and, and, and have some impactful uh, products come from those. And I'll give you an example. Um, uh, we work with um, with JPL on a on a biological isolate uh, that that mutated on the surface of a low Earth orbiting platform over a number of years in the vacuum of space. Um, and when we got it back here on Earth, uh, JPL scientists and we looked at it and we saw some some super uh, interesting uh, biological characteristics in the species that it had um, acquired when it was uh, in space, and it allowed us to take this species and back at our laboratories in Massachusetts, get it to be optimized uh, in a way that it can replace entire classes of chemicals that um, heretofore had presented some challenges to the environment and to human health. And, and that sort of partnership between 
um, you know, a government or quasi-governmental agencies and the private sector, as I've just described, I think are going to accelerate in this kind of age of biotechnology that Isaacson paints for us. Uh, and I concur with, you know, Chris on, and, and some of his examples as well. I think this is just going to accelerate uh, in the current age. And, and, I, and I really think the the biological engineering solutions that uh, we're going to uh, need to draw upon are going to largely be um, shared between, say, government um, uh, assets, whether that's uh, uh, space-based platforms, as an example I gave, or collections that they have had over a number of years that they've looked at, whether that's at the Department of Energy or, or, or other uh, uh, federal agencies, and they're going to look to groups like our own to see whether or not these things can be turned into the, the world's next classes of therapeutics, drugs, and biological engineering capabilities. So I do think there's a, a good dawn um, for us. I do think it's very bright, and I do, uh, I do very much agree with everybody on this call that um, the future of, of biomedicine and biotech is, is certainly bright. So, uh Chris, your thoughts on the regulatory environment, sort of a, a tangential to what we talked about, government partnerships. Do you see any, uh, you know, changes in terms of how uh, regulation and, and approvals for the various stages that you know you, your projects have to go through, Jason's and, and and Russ's? Are there are there opportunities for the FDA and others to change those approvals going forward? Well, this is an area where I hope the FDA's responsiveness to the pandemic truly continues. Um, if there has been uh, a challenge for those investing in MedTech, it has been around categorizing how the FDA will respond to new technologies um, and getting very clear, very fast answers on uh, what the regulatory process is um, as they're faced with the emergence of new technologies that are contemplated in the uh, you know, the sort of approval codes. I also think that the relation between regulatory and reimbursement in the United States is going to need to be synced up uh, and it's going to need to happen a heck of a lot faster. It is a challenge to bring technologies to market and to calculate the risks involved with market launch if you have any questions about the regulatory approval process or what the reimbursement process will be, I am very optimistic and hopeful that uh, that reimbursement process as well as the regulatory process um, will begin to get uh, uh, predictive and anticipatory of emergent technologies rather than uh, responsive to them. Um, part of our being able to respond to pandemic and emergency situations is to have in place a regulatory process uh, as well as a reimbursement process where the world, from the caregivers to the patients uh, to the technologists who, and investors who are investing in, in, in cutting edge technology, uh, know that uh, the things that are available, the things that can be brought to market are actually going to get approved and paid for uh, and in what time and in how much that's going to cost. And this is an area where uh, I think, you know, the United States and the world really should pay some very, very special attention uh, in addition to the development of technologies. 
if you know you can develop them, if you know they're in the laboratory, if you know you can translate them and get them to patients, the real blockade in the investment equation uh, happens with uh, the FDA uh, and the reimbursement codes. So in, in terms of uh, areas of growth for your different corners of the life industry, uh, where do you see as trends coming up in the next couple of months and a couple of years, uh, hopefully as the, the pandemic settles down? Russ, let, let's start with you. I, I think ours is pretty obvious in that telehealth adoption has completely changed. I think it's going to be highly sticky due to the nature of you know, reduced friction and, and uh, ease of access, uh, in addition to just the fact that, you know, the, the, the video technologies and, and other telehealth technologies now are so effective compared to going into an office and putting yourself at risk of catching something else and, you know, having to drive there and, and all the inconveniences that come with that. So I think we're going to, you know, we're in a fortunate position to see the benefit and upside of that shift towards telehealth. Great, Jason. Yeah, for for Liberty, you know the the development of our therapeutics, and we have a number of candidates uh, currently being stressed by uh, National Academic Center at the moment for for COVID nineteen, and our drug development programs. You know they're so um, they're long range real activities uh, that are multi year sort of. Um, programs that have these these regulatory aspects and that Chris you know outlined that um, you know really take a, a special type of investor who's who's passionate about um, these indications and and the, the curative features of these of these drugs and therapies in a way and I and I you know our companies benefited from family office investment um, from from day one. And, and I think that that kind of class of investor will continue to, to be uh, very much enmeshed with some of these early stage um, therapeutics and, and, and drug development programs. Um, I do agree with, with Chris that I think that the FDA and other regulatory agencies are gonna become more agile, especially in the digital side and, and on the diagnostic side. Um, I don't see a lot of elasticity with regard to um, regulatory uh, domain governance with regard to, to drugs. Um, that said, we we do have a drug, the drug entering human trial this this summer, that's in a pathway that the FDA didn't have established just three years ago. So, you know, even before COVID, they were starting to show a little more flexibility with regard to, to their supervision. Um, and I do think that that to some degree will accelerate in the post-COVID world, um, but certainly not at the expense of um, ensuring that our drugs are, are safe and, and efficacious in the population. Um, I'll close just by, you know, saying here, if, if you look at the, what the world looks like in the next decade and so, um, I think the life sciences begin to make some significant contributions against a lot of these chronic um, diseases and, and the diseases of aging that uh, really present um, severe demographic and economic challenges uh, for uh, the United States and other countries. And the, the groups that are really making concerted efforts to, to manage those chronic conditions and bring about uh, a betterment in the human condition, I think are going to be um, really a, a recipient of a lot of attention by, by both individual family office and of course, uh, institutional investors. And Chris, uh, what about the largest area areas of growth for in medtech? Yeah, so 
We have a investment theorem and a prediction for the future of healthcare that we call the Meraki Convergence Theorem. And there are really four things that we are very confident are going to happen. The first is a much broader definition of med tech. Um, the, there is no longer going to be a definitive or defined line between medical devices, pharmaceutical, biotech, and life sciences. They will in the future be defined as med tech. They will converge together and a device, for example, will have biotechnology or pharmaceuticals uh, integrated into it. Um, so that's the first. The second is we see a new front door to the hospital. Um, we think that consumer product companies, retail chains, insurance companies, hospital systems, and telecommunication systems um, are, are all going to get integrated in a new way. We did use the example a little earlier of people getting tests at places like CVS and uh, Walmart. Um, and I think you're going to increasingly see that it's not the emergency room that's at the front door to the hospital, that it's uh, these commercial chains. And eventually you're going to see that that front door is the old, your own front door to your home. Um, that it's as likely that your uh, bedroom uh, will be uh, a hospital room for you at some point in the future. The third one is we see family-centric care. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about the patient taking control and the psychological phenomenon that we've noticed is that, uh, in fact, we don't treat ourselves as well as our family do. We're, we're more likely to be less compliant with pharmaceuticals. Um, uh, you know, for example, you're, you're more likely to be worried about your 80-year-old mother taking her medications than you are to take your own. Um, and what we see is that the physicians and healthcare systems will surround us with technology um, and the families will be increasingly empowered uh, to, to take care of themselves and their, their communities. And the last one is the magnifier to all of this. Um, and that is data analytics and artificial intelligence. Um, the access to data, the ability to analyze it, its integration across all of these organizations is going to provide more rapid and new insights to uh, innovation and accelerate the pace of innovation. So it's really those four things, a broader definition of med tech, a new front door to the hospital, family-centric care, and data analytics accelerating all of those uh, changes that are gonna bring the future of uh, healthcare to us. Thanks, Chris. And the last question for uh, for our group today is, you know, for family offices that are looking for authoritative information on life science, you know, where do you guys recommend that they should turn to to get that uh, good ground truth data? Let's start with you, Jason. Yeah, I I um, I encourage my my friends in the investment community um, to spend a lot of time reading. Um, the medical journals um, and and those that are are writing on um, the, the the real issues that, that are going to face us as a as a people over the next you know 20 30 even 40 years um, New England Journal of Medicine of course the Lancet um, they have great podcasts they have great um, really kind of bite-sized uh, commentary every week right now you can listen on New England Journal of Medicine to their editors do a COVID talk and and for you don't need to have a PhD or an MD to go ahead and appreciate uh, where the big muscle movements are coming um, in, in our field uh, and I was really pleased to hear this during the conversation today um, in, in our field there's there's a zero tolerance for 
um, in, any sort of, you know, cut corners, go fast, you know, fake it till you make it sort of an approach. And so what I encourage people to do is, is take a look at where the long bending arc is in, in health. And you can find that, I think, in these quality journals and these quality, you know, well-known um, uh, publications. Uh, because that's 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 really going to be the repository of um, information that I think an investor can use to, to 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 see where the real where everyone's skating, where everyone's headed in terms of addressing these long term chronic uh, conditions that pose the biggest threats to us in terms of both healthcare and prosperity. Russ, uh, what are your recommendations? Sure. Well, one place we look. Um, We've got some incredible investor groups. Um, WP Global is one that does an immense amount of research here, and they, they're very helpful when we're looking for information about a space. Um, uh, Kaiser Family Foundation is a great source for res research and deep understanding of, of what's going on out there. They have a population that allows them to tap into things that, you know, and data that others can't. Uh, a couple of newsletters that I read uh, every morning. One is Rama on Healthcare, uh, which is a terrific uh, email newsletter every morning that really does a good job rounding up what's going on in the space. The Healthcare Report is another terrific one um, that, again, gives you the ability to see what's going on across the journals um, in, in the broader media, uh, as well as breaking it down by sector. Thanks, Russ. And Chris, uh, from your perspective. Those are all great um, suggestions. And I think uh, the comment that you know, cutting corners, uh, short answers uh, are, are not what our industry is about, um, that, that family offices really need to look to those solid uh, data resources and not kind of listen to you know, the tick-tock 15-second blurbs you get on the news when it comes to making investment decisions. And so with that in mind, a, a couple of broad brush strokes. I like LSI, which is an organization that sells, uh, you know, deep industry research data um, across all different, you know, industry sectors. Uh, those reports that they have are, are well worth uh, the investment. Uh, PubMed is a good source for uh, published clinical data that's peer-reviewed, um, and I think that's a great source. Uh, every medical industry sector has specialty conferences that uh, doctors and physicians and nurses and healthcare practitioners go to. They are open to you. Uh, they are a great place to learn. Uh, I know that those events aren't happening this year during the pandemic, but many of these things have become online learning events. Uh, and you can buy a, a, a pass and log in and get access to the latest research uh, and, and ideas. Um, and it's really, really fun to do. And it's pretty quick and easy. Uh, and you meet a lot of cool and interesting people and, and make a lot of new friends doing it. So I encourage people to do it. And of course, we're always open to receiving uh, questions and comments and ideas and love to share uh, idea uh, ideas very no pressure kind of uh, learning environment uh, around here. Um, and we're always open to, uh, to, to dialogue, become part of our family and, and community. It's, it's very, very uh, open and we have access to all the 
academic and research institutions here and around the world, and we're glad to connect people to it. Well, thanks, Chris. And thank you also to, uh, to Jason and Russ for joining me today. Uh, and all of you. So truly appreciate your thoughtful insights. If you'd like to get in touch with our guests or have any questions, send us a quick email to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. That's familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend that you check out our website. You can find numerous resources, sign up for a newsletter, get this podcast and much, much more in your inbox and learn more about how we help family offices. That website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. Thank you again to our our panelists, and thank you everyone for joining us today. Well, that's it. Uh, Check back with us next week for a new podcast and updates on our site and social media in the coming days. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable, but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions, and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.